I don't know how many of you pick, have picked up on this, for those of you that are regulars at St. Luke's, over the years, that during the summer, the last couple of weeks of summer, I usually go on vacation, and um, in this case, Steve preaches, and then next week, I begin my fall sermon series. And uh, so I usually get a guest preacher for this weekend. And this year, this is a first, I did not know our guest preacher. But Peter Moore, who uh, used to be the dean of Trinity Seminary and used to work with Focus, uh, is having the Anglican Leadership Institute at Camp St. Christopher for the next few weeks. And, uh, and Peter invited the diocese and said, we're going to have all these clergy from all over the world coming. And so I said, do you have any coming in early? Because I'd love to get someone for Labor Day weekend. And he said, yes, one guy, and his name's Bart. So, <laughs> so we got Bart. Actually, I picked Bart. So I picked Bart up at the airport last night. And, and he came from Australia. And he is probably, at this point, exhausted. He preached this morning, um, and he's probably experiencing a little jet lag as well as exhaustion. But uh, Bart is a wonderful and sweet man. I had an opportunity to get to know him a little last night. We actually stayed up and visited till 10.30, and we got up early this morning. He didn't sleep really great last night and continued talking a little this morning. And he has a wonderful family and a wonderful ministry and uh, actually knows Steve Abbott, who many of you know. Um, and uh, here's the kicker. Bart did not grow up there. He met his wife in the mission field when they were do- both doing mission work and ended up marrying an Australian. He's actually from Good Samaritan Parish in Paoli, Pennsylvania. And, and John Hobbs, who used to be the youth minister here, is serving at that parish. And John Hobbs is here this morning from Good Samaritan in Paoli, Pennsylvania. So how's that for how the Lord works? Is that fun? So, yeah, it's really kind of fun. So it's really a blessing to have Bart here this morning. And, uh, Bart, I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah. I could say something in Australian, but uh, you might not understand it. They speak a whole another language down there. I did grow up in Philadelphia or, or in Paoli, and uh, when I go home to Paoli, everybody says, where are you from? Because you don't sound like you belong here. And I go to Australia, and, and I've been living there now for 20 years, and everybody says, well, where are you from? You don't belong here. So I don't know where I belong, but I'm glad to be here in uh, Hilton Head Island this morning. I want to thank you for your welcome and this opportunity, as, uh, as Greg has put it very graciously, he's uh, accepted me to come and fill his pulpit, even though he hasn't uh, heard me before. Fortunately, this morning, everything went well, so I'm here again. <laughs> 24 hours of travel time uh, does your head in. And uh, as I said to the eight o'clock service, please don't fall asleep because I'm going to try not to fall asleep. But let's pray, shall we? Father, this is always such a privilege and pleasure to be with your people wherever they meet. And even right now, as I consider this vast world of ours, that there are people all over the globe who worship you in spirit and in truth, in the name of the Lord Jesus, are gathering from every nation, race, tribe and tongue. 
And we are delighted that you have chosen us to be yours in Christ. May we lift our hearts to you even as you draw us to yourself. And may your words resonate in our heads and most especially in our hearts. That we might be drawn into you and look more and more increasingly like you, the Lord Jesus, in whom we put our hope and all our trust. Amen. Well, when your rector, Greg, invited me to come and preach this morning, he gave me two options. Either I could do the easy thing and reheat an old sermon that I'd been preaching, say, back in my own parish. But I just told him that we've just been doing the book of Revelation. And I don't know if you uh, really want to get into those details. Or secondly, I could preach from the lectionary readings for today. I quickly chose the second option before I read the readings. And when I read the readings, and particularly the one that I've chosen to base my sermon on this morning, it sent a shiver down my spine. Why a shiver? Because today's epistle reading is essentially about slavery. And as we shall soon see, the Apostle Paul is writing to a slave owner by the name of Philemon or Philemon in Australia. I don't know why. Americans and Australians differ on how to pronounce him. But Philemon is a slave owner and Paul is writing this letter, very short one page letter to Philemon to plead with him on the basis or on the behalf of his runaway slave Onesimus. Does anyone really know the story? Okay. Paul is pleading That instead of receiving his slave back, for Onesimus has run away, instead of receiving him back with harshness and cruelty and punishment and contempt, as most slave owners might do, Philemon is called by Paul to receive Onesimus back with the open arms of brotherly love and grace. Shivers went down my spine when I started to tie this reading about Philemon and Onesimus to your local history. I googled it so I know the exact truth. (laughs) In the state of South Carolina, slavery was legally practiced until 1865 when The government outlawed it. Of course, it continued in this state illegally for many years thereafter. Now, that is 1800 years or more after Paul's letter was written. That's a long time. Most fascinating, I find, is the fact that the vast majority of these slave owners were self-professed Christians. Did you know in 1788... Right here in this city, an Episcopal church called Zion Chapel of Ease was built. Built from the profits of slavery. Interestingly, Greg has just shown me a uh, a chalice that you use from that original chapel. On a more positive note, history also tells us that In 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, 
Soon after this island was captured by Union troops, hundreds of emancipated slaves flocked here to Hilton Head Island. And they came to buy land for the first time in their lives. They came to go to school for the first time in their lives. They came to live in government housing built for them. And the dream of freedom had finally become a reality here on this very island. That, of course, is the reason why Hilton Head is still home to a group of people known as the, and if I say it wrong, please correct me, the Gula, the Gullah people, direct descendants of those first emancipated slaves. Of course, you know your history far better than I. But my point is very simple, and it's the point I want to make throughout this sermon. Despite the fact that, as we shall see, Paul's letter written in A.D. 60 clearly advocated for the freeing of slaves and the end of slavery, albeit in a long period of time, as people got the hang of it and understood the gospel of grace. It took over 1800 years before most Christians, not only here, but around the world, would finally accept the idea that slavery was, in fact, morally wrong. It prompts perhaps you and I to ask the question, why? Why were Christians so blind? What took us so long to see the truth? Well, I think I know the answer. In the mind of most Christian slave owners was a well-rehearsed argument. You've probably heard it. And it went like this. If there's no law against it, it can't be wrong. You see, nowhere in the law of Moses was slavery outlawed. In fact, slavery was actually condoned, sanctioned in the Old Testament. It must therefore be God's will, right? And Jesus never publicly denounced slavery outrightly. It must therefore be God's will, right? And none of the apostles ever spoke out directly against slavery in a thou shalt not sort of form. It must therefore be God's will, right? If there's no law against it, it can't be wrong. Can it? It's true. The Bible never outlaws slavery. Never. But. And this is the point in the larger scope of God's purposes for the world, what he is doing in Christ. This way of thinking is terribly flawed, or as we would say in Australia, muddle headed. It is bad thinking to say that there's no law against it means that it must be right is quite crazy. To start with, Old Testament slavery differed radically from the form of slavery that took place here in South Carolina. In the Old Testament, slavery most commonly occurred over an outstanding debt. If, for example, you owed me a large sum of money that you couldn't repay, you and your family would become my slaves for a time until you could pay me back or until the year of Jubilee. When all debts were squared and everyone's uh, debts were forgiven and slaves were set free. 
This, no doubt, was Onesimus's situation. In other words, his slavery had nothing to do with racial subjugation of an inferior race, but entirely economic. And furthermore, although neither Jesus nor Paul can ever condemned slavery outright or advocated for its abolition outright, yet there were many occasions where their words undoubtedly pointed in that direction. When Jesus started his ministry, for example, what was the first sermon that he preached in the synagogue of Nazareth? Do you remember? He turned to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, to be precise, and declared in no uncertain terms, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you see? Jesus was announcing in these words That in him, the year of Jubilee had finally arrived. Did you know the year of Jubilee was never celebrated in Israel? It was promised, but never celebrated. The slaves were never set free until Jesus arrived and declared in his very first sermon that this time the slaves would be freed that people would be released and given a second chance, forgiven and set free to start all over again. But, of course, he didn't stop there. He then, as you recall, took the law of Moses, consisting of hundreds of commandments, and did an outrageous thing with them. He boiled them all down into two commandments. Just two. From hundreds of thou shalt nots, he said, and here are the two that you must hold on to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Everything that has come before is now subsumed in these two commandments. It was revolutionary. Instead of looking back for moral guidance to static laws etched in stone, Jesus taught his disciples to look forward to a new creation, to the transformative power of salvation that he would soon be releasing on earth through his death and through his resurrection and through the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit that he was going to give to all who believed in his name. This lies at the heart of the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May the future transcend and transform the present. May we, as our eyes are fixed on the future and the coming kingdom of God, be so changed by it here on earth, in the here and now. God's people 
would be able to make moral choices on all sorts of difficult and far ranging issues, including slavery, not based on laws outdated or left behind. But on the future where God is taking us in his son, Jesus Christ, summed up in one word. The word love. One of my favorite theologians is a man who only died a few years ago by the name of Stanley Grintz. He wrote a book called The Moral Quest, and in it he summarized Jesus' ethical vision with these words. The Christian ethic flows out of the vision of God's goal for creation. A redeemed people inhabiting a renewed creation and enjoying eternal fellowship with the triune God. Grants continues, this ethical life entails living each moment, eagerly anticipating and diligently advancing the reconciled fellowship God wills for us and for all creation, allowing the future to shape the way we live in the here and now. That was Jesus. What about the Apostle Paul? Did the Apostle Paul fully understand what Jesus had begun as he initiated the new creation? Of course, Paul did. Why else did he in several of his letters encourage Christian slave owners to show a radically new respect, even love for their slaves? And why else did he encourage Christian masters and slaves to come together in mutuality and brotherly affection, fellowship in Christ? As Paul boldly proclaims in Ephesians 1, Jesus came to bring all things in heaven and on earth into unity under one head, even the Lord Jesus Christ. With that in mind, there's no possible way that Paul wanted slavery or could even imagine that slavery would continue into the distant future. For Christ will consume it all. And that's why Paul's letter to Philemon is so important. Let me point out three key things, things that are critical to understanding Paul's argument. First, I want you to notice how in this one page letter, Paul never tries to use God's law to denounce slavery. Interesting, isn't it? Verse eight, he says to Philemon, although in Christ I could be bold, And order you to do what you ought to do. Now that's the words of law, of legality. I could order you to do what you ought to do. But verse 9, Paul pulls back. Yet, he says, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. The future kingdom has come to earth in the man Jesus Christ. Paul is telling Philemon, I refuse to badger you with static law codes. Instead, I want you to open your eyes to God's dynamic future revealed to us in Christ's life and death and resurrection and poured out to us in God's Holy Spirit. Philemon, will you see it? Will you accept it? Will you let it transform your life? The second thing I want to point out is found in verses four to seven. 
Here, Paul uses two critical Greek words to summarize where Jesus is taking the universe. The first word is agape. Of course, you all know that means divine love. Verse five literally reads like this. I hear about your agape and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all his holy people. What Paul is pointing out is that something unique has already begun to take shape inside of Philemon. This slave owner is already being changed. Philemon is being increasingly captivated by God's love. And although this love will only be perfected in heaven, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now we only see as through a glass dimly, but then face to face. Yet. It is visibly present even now in Philemon's life. To some degree, to some measure, it's already begun. The future has come. The second critical word in this paragraph is koinonia. Otherwise known as divine fellowship. In verse six, Paul says, I pray that your koinonia, your divine fellowship with us in the faith, may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. You see, Philemon not only belongs to the divine community of God's people, the church, but he is mutually dependent on its members. This is what koinonia means. Divine fellowship, not only with God himself, but with each other. Divine fellowship that is shared for the mutual benefit of all members. As the whole church matures and moves together in love into the, Christ, into the Christ-given future that he is preparing for all who love him. The future is embedded in the present, in you and in me, and it's having its mark. Now, the third thing to wor worth noting in this letter is how in verses 8 to 16, Paul proceeds to insert the runaway slave Onesimus. He hasn't mentioned him until now, but in verse 8, Paul inserts him into this larger picture of divine love and fellowship. In these verses, Paul introduces him not, however, as Philemon's slave, but as Paul's son, son in the Lord. And you see, because both Onesimus and, in fact, Philemon are both the products of Paul's missionary activities, both have become Christians through Paul's ministry. They are both Paul's sons and therefore they are both brothers. In Christ. This is what Paul means when in verse 16, he encourages Philemon to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, a dear brother. I hope you can see the impeccable logic of Paul's argument. As I said, he doesn't argue using law. If you have children, you know, it doesn't really work anyway. Paul argues that a new creation has come. It has already begun and that Philemon and his slave Onesimus are both equal members of this new creation. As such, the same attributes of love and fellowship with Philip, which Philemon has repeatedly shown towards all the saints 
and of which Paul is extremely proud. That same love and fellowship must now be extended to his slave because he's his brother in Christ. And as brothers for eternity, Philemon must not allow his present behavior towards Onesimus to be in any way shaped by the world, but rather by the vision of the new creation, of the new humanity in Christ. Not by some static law of the past carved on stone, but by this dynamic future that Jesus Christ has already begun in both of them. A union of love and fellowship in the Holy Spirit. Now, confident that Philemon has understood the subtleties of Paul's argument thus far, Paul concludes with these words from verses 17 and 18. They're profound. So, says Paul. If you consider me a partner, that is, a partner in the glorious future of Christ's unity and reconciliation, if you consider me a partner, then welcome him, that is, welcome Onesimus, as you would welcome me. Verse 18 is the clincher. And if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. You know what he's saying. Surely you know what he's saying. Paul is advocating for Philemon to set Onesimus free. And if Philemon won't do it out of the generosity of his heart, Paul is suggesting that he will pay off Onesimus' debt. Paul, the apostle, is willing to do anything to set Onesimus, a brother in Christ, free. From slavery. Do you love history? I I love history, and that's why I go on Google a lot. I don't know if Wikipedia is always accurate. But if you go online, you can find a lot of articles about the early church. It's very interesting that history tells us that this one letter addressed to Philemon, which was then later, as you know, circulated around the Roman Empire through all the churches in Asia Minor, as they did with all these letters that Paul wrote. This one letter had such a powerful impact on many Christian slave owners of the day. They could see the logic. They could see the underlying truth that Paul was pointing towards, namely that Jesus Christ is bringing all things into unity through his life, death and resurrection. A new creation had, in fact, begun. And so deep down inside, they knew that Paul was right when he said to the Galatian Christians, There is no Jew or Greek, no male or female, no slave or free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. As a result of this letter, many slave owners quietly released their slaves and forgave their debts. History tells us. Of course, hearing that, you might be scratching your head wondering, well, if that's the case, if that's really true, then why didn't the early church eventually abolish slavery right throughout the Roman Empire? I have atheistic friends who use the issue of slavery in this fashion. They can't believe in Christ because of what the church has done in the issue, amongst many others, of slavery. Why didn't the early church eventually abolish slavery 
throughout the Roman Empire. Well, here's the sad part of the story. It seems that during the years of Emperor Constantine, when the church became powerful and filled with wealthy estate owners, the arguments for and against slavery reverted back to the old emphasis on God's static laws. Wealthy Christian landowners argued convincingly that since neither the Old Testament nor Jesus nor any of the apostles ever spoke in outright condemnation of slavery, therefore it must be okay. Great logic, right? But their argument won the day. As a matter of fact, one of the most brilliant theologians of the fourth century, no doubt you've heard him of him, St. Augustine, actually supported slavery, arguing that slavery was obviously ordained by God as a punishment for sin. Work that one out. Augustine's teaching was then cited by many bishops and popes as evidence, indeed proof, of the acceptability of slavery. And it's no wonder then why the Catholic Church became the largest slave owner in the entire Roman Empire. The Catholic Church. I I just heard on the news that uh, Georgetown University accepts that they owned slaves in the 1800s and sold 254 of them to some landowner in Louisiana to pay off a debt that the university owed. Now, that was run by Jesuits. Augustine's argument won the day in the Catholic Church and slave collars have been found from around A.D. 500 in uh, the place called Sardinia. Has anyone ever been there? Beautiful island. Stamped, get this, with the sign of the cross. So it must be okay to own a slave because it's got a cross on it. Now, I'm not suggesting that anyone here thinks slavery is okay. I would imagine that everyone here is appalled by the idea that one man would own another man. No Christian would dare think that slavery is right in the 21st century. And yet only 200 years ago, right here in South Carolina, most, if not all, Christians considered slavery morally legitimate. Convinced that it was indeed the will of God. Have you all heard of John Newton, the famous uh, slave trader? I think we're familiar at least with his hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Well, it's not all that sweet. Uh, Newton's sight wasn't all that well restored at least not for the first 30 years of his Christian walk. You see, even after he became a Christian, John Newton sold slaves. He captained two slave ships, the Duke of Argyle and the African. Hundreds of slaves were traded. And like so many Christians before him, he falsely based his arguments for slavery on the uh, absence of any divine law against it. Rather than on the bigger picture, the dynamic movement of love and fellowship and agape initiated by Jesus Christ, the new creation has come. 
Newton didn't know that argument. It may be hard for us to believe, but it took over 30 years for John Newton to finally change his mind and begin to lobby someone in the Parliament of England by the name of Wilberforce, who then took slavery to the Parliament and it was abolished finally. Now, what I don't want you to hear today is that I have something against God's law. God's ancient law is not worthless. It is not to be rejected or to be ignored. One of today's readings is Psalm 1, which goes like this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. As the Apostle Paul said, God's law is holy and good and righteous. However, however, static law in the past, etched on stone, is inadequate. It is not bad, but it's inadequate. With the Apostle Paul, We must, yes, hold on to God's moral law, of course, but never forget to have our eyes firmly fixed on the future, on the dynamic movement of God's will as Jesus brings all things in heaven and on earth under his sovereign lordship. For in Christ, the old social hierarchies that have for so long destroyed human relationships, such as the one between powerful slave owners And their powerless slaves or between powerful men and their powerless women or between the powerful rich and the powerless poor. All those social hierarchies that subjugate and put down and destroy must be gradually dismantled in the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. For if you walk away with anything today, walk away with this thought that in Jesus Christ, who has brought to us the new creation, who has begun it, who has sown the seeds of it in our hearts by giving us his Holy Spirit. He who has begun the new creation has called us to be agents of that new creation in him. Because in him, the year of Jubilee has come. To set the captives free. The good news of the gospel is here. And as we move forward. It is making all things new. Through his people. Through this church. And through our activities in Jesus name. May the Lord bless All those who hear his word and become agents of his new creation in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.